I want to invite you to turn in your Bible to Mark chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, we have extra Bibles. If you're here for the first time, just raise your hand. We'd be glad to give you a Bible. As Marty just shared with you, we want you to start reading the Bible and exploring what it would look like to have a relationship with Jesus. Before we start our study, though, we, we do um, have a special prayer request. Most of you know that we're trying to partner with churches and Christians in Syria. And if you're following what's going on right now, it's really very, very difficult for Christians in Syria. There's a civil war going on, but in addition to that, there's severe persecution. Uh, Christians are being martyred in Syria. This week, or actually this weekend, there was a woman's conference of 200 Christian women from Syria who were invited. Somehow the authorities found out. It wasn't like they had billboards up. It was supposed to be under, under wraps, but somehow the authorities found out and, ar- and arrested 20 men, husbands, and, and basically told the husbands, if your wife goes to this conference, there will be severe repercussions. So anyway, the women, as far as we know, most of them still went. This morning and last night, they're starting to return home. So we don't even think about that here. We don't think about what, what is it like to be a Christian in a place that's persecuted. It it saddens me, and I know this to be the case. If there's a few drops of rain, there's going to be less people here. Meanwhile, Christian brothers and sisters are glad to go somewhere, even though it's going to cost drops of blood. So we need to be reminded, number one, of how cushy we have it here, but to pray for others. The Bible tells us to pray for those who are persecuted. Paul said, pray that they will be delivered from disobedient and evil men. Pray in addition that God will give them great boldness. Uh, The church is growing like crazy over there. Many Muslims are coming to faith. House churches are growing up in a place where you would have never imagined that. Many Muslims are having dreams with Jesus and, and, and finding Christians and coming to Christ. So would you join me as we pray for their safety, for their boldness, and even if some of them are called to die, Pray that God will give them the courage. Revelation chapter 12 says, they overcame Satan by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony and they loved not their lives unto death. So let's join and pray for them. Father, we thank you that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And we pray and thank you that the gospel is spreading rapidly in Syria, Lebanon, and in the Muslim countries, but not without a severe cost. And as is often the case, the blood of Christians is the seed of of growing the church. We pray that you will keep safe these women, their husbands, their families. God put supernatural protection over them like the angels that guarded Peter and others in the book of Acts. Please, Lord, give them unspeakable courage and joy in their hearts that even if they must give their lives for Christ, that they would do so with hope and courage and faith by the power of the Holy Spirit, knowing that there's a coming resurrection. And as Jesus taught us, don't fear them who can kill the body, but fear God who can kill the body and put the soul in hell. And as the church in America, help us to to wake up, Lord, and to pray and, and to live watchful, prayerful, sacrificial lives. Thank you that the gospel is spreading. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This morning we're in Mark chapter 3, and the series we've, we've called this Clarifying Jesus. 
and then committing to the journey. So as you're reading the Gospel of Mark, in the first eight chapters, Mark introduces us right to the beginning in verse 1. He says, Jesus is the Son of God. But what we're going to see in Mark 1-8 through 8 is that God knows that, and the demons know that, but the disciples don't know that. So we'll see this contrast. The disciples are going, who is this guy? Meanwhile, the demons are going, we know who he is, the Son of God. This morning, we're going to see what probably fits well with something that's going on in our culture right now. How many of you saw the Avenger movie? You don't have to be ashamed. We're not going to judge. This is a judge-free Joe. So some of you are like, are we allowed? Should I? Billions of dollars spent the first weekend. And I'm going, why? What's going on here? Well, I think there's probably a, a, a number of things. But, but I think it's fair to say this, that the concept of an Avenger is something that we all really long for. And so my suggestion is that in many ways, we're going to see Jesus this morning as the great avenger, that Jesus is going to come and avenge what was rightly his from the beginning. Because remember, the story of the Bible is God's beautiful creation. Everything was perfect and shalom. But when Adam and Eve sinned, everything got turned upside down. God cursed the earth. Satan became the God of this world. People became corrupt sinners and the world began to populate in rebellion against God and disobedience. And so now we're full of people who are not only disconnected from God, but deeply connected to Satan. And that's important to remember. Satan is the God of this world. He is the prince of the power of the air. He is ruling over the kingdoms of this earth. And every single unbeliever is held captive by him. But when Jesus came to earth, he introduced that he was going to destroy the works of Satan. But he wasn't going to do it all at once. Even though he could, he could have come and thrown Satan right in hell. But we're going to see Christ con confronting and encountering Satan and telling us a parable that reminds us that, wow, I need to remember who I am, whose I am, and what's going on here on the earth. So the first thing we want to talk about is, is Mark's going to describe the fame of Jesus and the fame of Jesus, particularly in regards to his mission. So while this passage is mentioned, this story is mentioned in other passages, Mark puts a little different spin on it in what he brings out. So let's look in verse 7 and 8 to begin. It says, And Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples. Now, he's already at Capernaum, so what do you mean he withdrew to the sea? Well, what, what it appears that he did is Capernaum was a, a seaport city, but he went north up where it was more of a, a bandit, kind of like going to the Outer Banks instead of, uh, instead of Wildwood. There's not people everywhere. But the reason he did that, look what it says. He withdrew up there, and a great multitude followed from Judea, Jordan, the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. A great multitude heard of all that he was doing and came to him. Now, just to, to, to picture the magnitude of, of how many people came around, I put a little diagram up here. Some of you are familiar, but again, you probably, if you have a study Bible, if you haven't gotten a study Bible, you want to get one because it'll have some maps in the back. You remember that Jesus did a lot of his ministry in Galilee at the Sea of Galilee. So they're right here. Now, again, these names and locations mean nothing to us, but but for example, it says crowds came from Idumea, right? That's 120 miles away. 
it's only 60 miles to the beach from here. So imagine walking to Belmar, to the beach, and back. That's how far people were coming. Tyre, way up here, is 50 miles away. So the fame of Jesus was even greater than the fame of John the Baptist. People were coming from all over the place. And we're going to note here that there's quite a bit of ethnic diversity. The Bible actually calls Galilee, Galilee of the Gentiles. So Mark just wants us to see that his fame is spreading, but his fame particularly in coming against Satan. So let's keep reading. It says, He told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the multitudes in order that they might not crowd him. Now the word crowd here is, is actually the word crush. Like literally Jesus was, was being careful not to be literally crushed by these people. He healed many with the result that all who had afflictions pressed about him in order to touch him. So Jesus says, look, you know, let, let, let me just avoid getting crushed by the people. So we have some archaeological discoveries. That's kind of about the size of, of what these boats would look like. So Jesus is going to teach this vast crowd out in a boat, but he's also going to come and interact with the people. Now, verse 11 tells us this. Whenever the unclean spirits beheld him, they would fall down before him and cry out, saying, you're the son of God. And what do you think about this? Why would demons do that? Why would they shout out the truth about Jesus? Why would they, why would they bellow out something that might be helpful for Jesus? That's right. That's what I'm trying to get you all to get. I am the son of God. But yet Jesus tells them, be quiet. Well, I want to suggest a couple of things. They didn't do this because they wanted to. They did this because they had to. We read in James chapter 2 that when demons hear about the Lord, it says they tremble. So it's just important for us to, to look more deeply into this unseen world, right? Right now, even in this room, there are angels and demons, and Satan roams around on this earth. And what we find in the Bible is that while Satan controls all unbelievers, he sometimes controls them from the inside. Don't let anybody tell you that this doesn't happen today, that people don't become indwelled by demons. It still happens. We don't see it as much in this culture. I've seen it. I've prayed over people who fell to the ground and a woman speaking in a man's language and saying foul things. But we don't see it as much. But what we do need to realize is that Satan is holding people in bondage. He's got them blinded to the gospel and in willful or blind disobedience to Christ. That's why people aren't flocking to Jesus. That's why we're not overflowing every Sunday in church, because Satan is binding people. But as Jesus encounters these demons, he kind of begins to give us a prefigurement of, of what we're going to see in a moment, that Jesus is coming head on to take on Satan. But Mark, Mark sees fit to go, look, I just want to talk to you briefly about the fame of Jesus. But now, instead of just describing his fame, now he's going to actually define the apostles and their mission. So look at verse 13. It says, he went up to the mountain and he summoned those whom he himself wanted and they came to him and he appointed 12. 
Now, we already saw in the gospel that he had already called out some guys. Hey, follow me, follow me. So by now, within that crowd, just like every Sunday morning, some people are curious, some are convinced, some are committed. But this particular moment, there's a, there's a bunch of people that are mildly curious, some that are probably beginning to believe. But Jesus is going to call to himself this select group that he's going to call apostles. There's a couple of things I want to point out about this. In the book of Luke, it actually says this. It was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray. He spent the whole night in prayer to God. And then when day came, he called his disciples and chose 12 of them. So he didn't just go up to the mountain to go, hey, look at me up here. I can see you all. Hey, come here. He prayed all night. What a reminder and a challenge for us as you're making decisions, particularly those of you who are in leadership and those of you who pray for our church to pray for leaders. This is something that Jesus prayed about all night and the Spirit of God revealed to him who he would select. And it's interesting because we would have never put these guys together. None of them were religious per se. And you've got people like Matthew who's a tax collector who, who pretty much left Judaism to to join ranks with the Romans. You've got a zealot whose sole purpose was to overthrow the, realm, the Romans. Like this group of men would have never humanly been put together. Probably the most ironic is that one of them, Judas Iscariot, also betrayed him. And yet Christ selected him. He knew this would happen. But I want to remind you that when it comes to a relationship with Jesus... At that time, rabbis never picked disciples. They just didn't do that. Rabbis never went to somebody and said, hey, um, would, you, would, you, would you be interested in following me? Uh, I, think, I think I could help you a lot. It's just not how it worked. People picked rabbis. They, they would come and they would observe a man and they'd say, I want to be like him. Hey, could, could I be one of your disciples? Notice how different. Mark, Mark makes it really clear. He summoned them to himself whom he wished, that's what it says literally, whom he wanted. And so all of us can be reminded here that God's call supersedes our will. That if you're a Christian, you didn't become a Christian because you played the first checker. Jesus chose you. He called you. The Bible says everyone he predestined, he called. And he brought us to himself through the gospel. And it was with a purpose. The Bible says by his doing you are in Christ that no flesh would boast in his presence. And it's ironic because on this day when he chose them, three and a half years later, he says to them in the upper room, hey guys, remember this. You didn't choose me. I chose you so that you would go and bear fruit. And that's encouraging. Think of your Christian life as Jesus began a good work in you. And though you might not be what you want to be today, He's got a purpose for you, and he wants to bear fruit through you, and he's unfolding his plan in your life, and so I hope that encourages you, but I want you to notice that he did not choose them primarily for what they were going to do, but first of all, look what it says. He appointed them, verse 14, that they might be with him, and that he would send them out. Don't miss that, that they might be with him. You see, the essence of a relationship, or I'm sorry, the essence of discipleship is relationship. It, it's not primarily about your task. Jesus wants you to go out and get some souls. It's about a relationship. 
And there are too many Christians that are sidestepping to be with him and thinking, as long as I do something for him. And if that's your mindset, it needs to be re reshaped. It's far more important who you are and what your relationship is with Christ than what you do for him. At the end of the day, when we meet Jesus, he's not going to primarily examine what we did, but who we are. The Bible says one day he'll expose the motives of our hearts and the things that are done in secret. So I want to challenge you, because I know it's a struggle to spend time with the Lord. There are so many excuses people make. Oh, I'm so busy. Yeah, I used to have a quiet time regularly. Oh, gosh, things are out of control right now. I haven't been reading my Bible. Listen, get back to that. There's nothing. I don't, don't even waste my time telling me all the reasons why you don't have time for that. Jesus said to Martha and Mary, he said, Martha, you're worried about many things, but Mary's sitting at my feet. There's only one thing's necessary. That's what she's doing. She's chosen the good part. Now, what happens is, as you and I cultivate our relationship with Jesus, that'll then overflow, and God's going to use you. In fact, what's, what really blesses me is that Mark says he called them to be with him. Later on in the book of Acts, after being with him all this time and cultivating their relationship, Peter and John preach so boldly that Acts 4.13 says this. You might want to, next to this verse, be with him, put Acts 4, verse 13. The people were watching Peter and John as, as they were so bold. And it says, now when they observed the confidence in Peter and John, and they understood that, hey, wait a minute, these are uneducated and untrained men. They were amazed. And they began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. So I want you, I want you, I want you to think about this. God doesn't need PhDs and theologians and real educated people. God uses people who spend time with Jesus. And I hope that, that, that that'll challenge you. Don't you want people to recognize you for having been with Jesus? I mean, yeah, I have a PhD, a public high school diploma. <laughs> Listen, you don't need a bunch of degrees. What you need is a walk with God. That's what I need. The best thing I can give to a congregation is to spend time alone with Christ, to give myself to prayer and the word. And that's what Jesus wants for all of us. And so as a husband, lead your family in that. As parents, teach your children to be with Jesus. And yeah, it's going to be a struggle. And yeah, sometimes you're busy doing the Lord's work. But if you're busy doing the Lord's work and not spending time with him, then he's going to tell you Revelation 2. I, I know your deeds, you're very busy, but you lost your first love. So repent and do what you used to do. So let's be encouraged and challenge one another. That real discipleship starts with being with Jesus. Then he sends us out. And he sent them out to do two things, to proclaim his message and also to have authority to cast out the demons. Now, I don't think that that's exactly what he has for us, to go and cast out demons. But I will say this, there's a parallel there. Because as you and I go out during the week, we might not be coming against demons on a regular basis. But we are doing similar things. The Apostle Paul said this, Jesus told me to go and proclaim the gospel, Acts 26, to turn men from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to the power of God. And so even though we're not necessarily coming and confronting demons 
in a, in a frontal assault, every time you're sharing the gospel, every time you're praying for others, we are coming against Satan and his dominion, even as hard as it is to imagine, until our children are saved, the Bible says they're dead in their sins and they are held captive and energized by the evil one. And so praying, teaching, loving, and asking God to rescue them, what a joy that is. Imagine what it would be like to go to a, a place where Christians are in prison and have a key and just let them out. That's what we're doing. And so as we go out, it's not like we're this scaredy cat little church and we're going, the devil's banging on the walls. No, we're going out there and we're banging on the gates of hell. With the power of Jesus, the Bible says, Jesus will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So think of yourself, I get with Jesus, I grow in grace, and then I go on the offense. I'm, I'm assaulting Satan's kingdom, helping to bring others into God's kingdom. Well, now we come to the third point, and I'm, oh, I know I had this around here somewhere. The third thing we're going to see is that Jesus is going to define a reason for his mission. And what I mean by this is don't think just one-dimensionally that when Christ came to earth, it was singularly just to die for our sins. That's true. But I think sometimes we lose a more grand and cosmic scheme that this entire universe is from God, through God, for God and his glory, and that there's also a spiritual war going on. It kind of reminds me of that song that says, like a rose trampled on the ground, you took the fall and thought of me above all. I'm not sure that's true. I don't think when Jesus hung on the cross, he thought of me above all. There were many things he thought about. And what we're going to read in this passage is that Satan is the enemy, but Christ came, and he's going to tell us in this passage that he came to destroy Satan. And I want us to talk about that because that's really encouraging. So let's look at the passage. It begins in verse 20. It says, They came home and a multitude gathered again to such an extent that they couldn't even eat a meal. And when his own, now literally in the original language, it just says his own. Right? Now, what do you mean his own? Is that his family, his, his own friends, his own disciples? It's translated his own people. When they heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, literally to seize him. Wait, what? You're going you're gonna to take control of Jesus? Almost every time this word is used, it's almost comical in Mark. Like, yeah, how's that going to go? Go take control of Jesus. So his family finds out, hey, I think Jesus has gone off the deep end. Like, he's really cuckoo. He's fanatic. Remember, his brothers don't even believe that he's Messiah. So, so they're going to have to 302 him, right? Like, he's gone off the deep end. He's lost his marbles. He's not even eating. So they show up, but they can't even get to him. It says they were in a house. And so I found a, a picture a couple weeks ago. Archaeologists do a lot of digging over in, in, the, in the area of the Sea of Galilee. And so somebody, I'll come back to a couple verses, but somebody had a picture uh, that I thought, you know, it kind of gives us a little bit better idea of like, what are we talking about in a house? Is it a little Levittowner? Is it a bungalow? Is it a clubhouse? You know, so kind of picture that they lived in these communities and villas and picture thousands of people crowded around this house and Jesus' family can't even get to him, but, but they're whispering down the lane, hey, that's my brother in there and I think he's gone off the deep end. Tell, tell him he needs to come out here. We need to talk to him. So picture this throng of people 
crowded around this house. But what Mark does is he has a technique, and as you're reading through Mark, it's called sandwiching. He'll start a story, and then he'll leave you hanging, right? You're like, his family's outside? Is that, is that his brother right there, right? And then Mark's like, meanwhile, back inside the house again. Let's talk about that. Then he's going to come back to these people hanging outside. So let's look here where Jesus is going to really describe his mission. What exactly is he here for? So, verse 22, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. Now, that word Beelzebul, B-U-L, is related to a Syrian word. One of the Syrian gods was called Beelzebub, and, and that, that term meant like master of the house, which is interesting, master of the house, right? The Jews began to change that a little bit, and they used a term that, that meant Lord of the, the, the dung, Lord of P-O-O-P, Lord of flies, Lord of carrion, like vultures. And so this term began to be used to describe Satan. Satan is the Lord of the flies. He's the Lord of the dung. He's the, he's the enemy of God. And so think about what they're saying to Jesus. They weren't denying that he had power. They weren't trying to explain away his miracles like liberals do now. I mean, sometimes I think that's even more painful when they go, Jesus didn't actually feed 5,000. Everybody had their lunch under their robe. And when one guy shared, everyone else felt guilty and uh, pulled out their lunch. I'm like, please, that's harder to believe than that Jesus did walk on water and raise the dead. But what we're going to find here is that to willfully watch these direct miracles of Jesus and then to go, ah, he gets his power from the devil. Those guys get the Stuby Award this week. Stinks to be you, because we're going to see what Christ pronounces against them. But let's talk about this story. In verse 23, it says, or verse 22, he casts out demons by the ruler of demons. Now, Jesus, if he was talking today, he, was gonna, he, he would basically say something like this. Hey, fellas, can, hey, Einsteins, can, can, can we just do a, a basic primer in logic? Like, is it me or are you guys off the deep end here with your stupidity? Because think about this. If I'm casting out demons, and these are Satan's demons, and people are his possessions, why would Satan do that? He would be working at odds with himself. It doesn't even make sense. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. So Jesus calls them and he says, now listen. He says, how, verse 23, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house won't be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. But he's finished. And so what Jesus is going to do is he's going to portray Satan as a strong man. And he's going to say, hey, if a strong man has a bunch of possessions and you want to get his possessions, that ain't going to happen until you subdue the strong man, okay? Now, I think what the possessions are here are people, right? Satan is the strong man who holds the souls of people. 
Most people are going to hell. He's going there with them. He's not the landlord of hell, but he's going there with them. And Jesus is going, look, if I'm taking people away from Satan and casting out his demons, then that would be stupid. Why would Satan work against himself? So look at, look at this next verse. He says, no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man. Then he will plunder his house. What does he mean by plundering Satan's house? What does he mean by binding Satan? You know, I, I thought of a modern-day similarity to this. It's certainly not the, the, the gravity of blasphemy against the Spirit, but there are a number of people that don't believe that God speaks in any way today except through the Bible. But if you know anything about what's happening in the Muslim world, there are thousands of Muslims all over the Middle East who are having dreams and visions of Jesus. Now, they don't get saved through those dreams and visions, but many of them are Muslims who would never even think a thought about Jesus other than to despise him. And suddenly they have a dream and a vision of Jesus. Now, my question would be, when people say, well, God doesn't do that anymore, my question will be, well, I wonder where those dreams and visions are coming from. Because the result is many of those people are flocking to Christ, so much so that I read in one place that some of them, in trying to sort of be careful, are asking their friends, have you had a vision? So we need to stand back and say, wow, God's goal is to overthrow Satan and to bring people from himself. But what I want you to see here when we talk about Jesus defining his mission is there are some scriptures that indicate that Jesus, he didn't just come to save sinners. He came to destroy Satan. I love 1 John 3, verse 8. It says, The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. Now, I want you to think about this. When we use the word practice, we're like, hey, I'm practicing my golf swing. Literally, in, in Greek, it's just a present tense. The one who continually sins. In other words, the one who habitually lives a life of uninterrupted sin. Now, we, we as Americans need to get rid of the idea that, yeah, he's talking here about people who smoke crack and murder people. To ignore God in your life is to be right there habitually sinning. You're just, you're just completely ignoring God. He's not even on your screen. His will, his purposes, there's no submission to the Lord. There's no confession of sin. The world is full of people who are practicing sin. Why? Because they're controlled and led by the devil. In fact, in the, in the original language, it actually says this, the devil is sinning from the beginning. Wait a minute, how, you can't, wait. He, he's, yeah, that's how uninterrupted Satan's life pattern is. He started out with sin and he is sinning from the beginning and he's bringing the more the merrier. But look what this verse says. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of Satan. I like that. I think that's awesome. That makes me go, hallelujah. The night before Jesus hung on that cross, this is what he said. He said, now the prince of this world is cast out. The ruler of this world is judged. 
You see, something happened on that cross when Jesus shed his blood and he rose from the dead. The lion of the tribe of Judah overcame Satan. He overcame sin. He conquered the devil. And if he wanted to, he could have nuked the devil right then. But it's a really interesting word that's used here for destroy. Anybody who's ever taken Greek knows that you learn these little paradigms of verbs. And, and the verb that's usually used is the word luo. And luo can be translated destroy, but usually it's translated to loose, to loosen something, right? That's the word that's used here. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of Satan. But what I think, I think may be implied here is, here's how he's doing it. He's doing it one life at a time, right? He hangs on that cross, conquers sin, pays our debt, and every time someone comes to himself, Jesus is unloosing and destroying Satan. Every time someone is translated from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son, that's another string that's untied. So if you're a Christian, why do you want to bind back the other way and go back to your sins, right? What an encouraging way to look at what God's doing. He's unleashing what Satan has bound up today. And we have a part in this. We get to hold the string a little bit. We not only participate right now, but remember in Genesis when God told, told Satan, one day my son is going to crush your head? The New Testament actually gives us a foot in that. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 16, and the God of peace shall soon crush Satan under your feet. And I'm like, do I get to stomp on him too, Lord? So here's a way to think of it. We mustn't treat Satan and demons lightly. It's nothing to joke about. And anytime you see preachers on TV going, let's punch the devil in the nose, I'll kick him right out of here, that's, that's, that's foolish. The Bible says in the book of Jude, not even the archangel Michael brought an accusation against Satan, but he said, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. So that's how I come against Satan. I don't tell him, devil, I'll give you a beating. I say, Lord Jesus, rebuke Satan. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. We stand only in the blood and the authority and the power of Christ who said, all authority is mine in heaven and on earth. We're just little children submitted to God and hiding behind our father. It says, submit to God and then resist the devil and he'll flee from you. But be reminded that we're in a warfare here. But you don't have to be afraid if you belong to Christ. The Apostle Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 2. He said, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph through Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him. And you say, does that mean everyone will like us? He said, no. To some we will be an aroma of death. We'll remind them that Christ is coming to judge them. But to others, we're an aroma of life. We bring the life of Jesus. Jesus wants to use you to set others free. But it's more than just bringing people to Christ to set others free. There's another way that we set others free. You see, every time a Christian falls into sin, every time a Christian turns away from the Lord, their mind has been clouded and now they're believing Satan's lies. And an example of this is when, it, when, when a Christian parent raises their kid in Christ and he comes home from college and he says, I don't believe that stuff anymore, mom and dad. I've loosened up my, my ideas here and I'm, I'm kind of go out on my own. The Apostle Paul had that happen with the Corinthians, the very people he led to Christ. They turned on him. They called him their enemy. And he didn't think he had the ability to change their thinking. But he knew it was a spiritual warfare. And so this is what he did. He sought the Lord. 
he said this. He said in verse 3, Though we walk in the flesh, we don't war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. He's not talking about his thoughts. People go, ooh, I need to take my thoughts. He's talking about their thoughts. Every time a Christian starts believing Satan's lies and falling back into sin, they've come under Satan's stronghold. And it's not our clever wisdom that's going to call them back. It's prayer on our knees that the power of God will destroy these lies in their mind. And that as Paul said in 2 Timothy, that God would grant them repentance, that they'll come to the knowledge of the truth and escape the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So I want you to join me this morning in praising the Lord that we're free from Satan, that he's already defeated, that we belong to Christ. We'll talk next week a little bit more about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, but I want to say this. If you're fearful that you've committed this blasphemy of which Jesus says, if you commit this sin, there's no forgiveness. If you're fearful of that, then that's a sign that you haven't done that. Because when we learn about this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, these people are not begging for forgiveness and Jesus is going, nope, it's too late. These people are blaspheming against Christ and saying he's of the devil. You can harden your heart only so long until you reach the point of no return. But if in any way you feel a fear that Christ wouldn't accept you, that you've already sold your soul to the devil, that's a lie. You'll never read in the Bible of anybody who comes to Jesus and he says, nope, too late, you crossed the line. But you read in the Bible of many people who harden their heart. And it's not a question of whether Jesus would accept them. It's a question of them never wanting to come to him. So if you're not a Christian this morning, I urge you, don't play games with Jesus. Don't say, oh, I'll wait till I'm an old man. If you feel God drawing you to Christ, come now while you can. Because there may come a time when you could care less anymore. And while you might be comfortable in the slumber of Satan's lies, you're going to die and go to hell without even realizing that you were held captive by him. So let's praise God as we close this morning that he set us free. And so what I'd like us to do is um, just think about a couple things. Number one, this should be our song. Let's continue to praise the Lord Jesus for dying and defeating Satan. This isn't something that you go, oh yeah, yeah, this happened. Yeah, a long time ago. Get your praise on, even if you're not happy. We can praise God. This is how Paul prayed for the new converts in Colossians 1. He said, I pray for you that you will joyfully give thanks to the Father who delivered you from the dominion of darkness and translated you to the kingdom of his beloved son. Get your hymn book out and say, I heard about a Savior who died for me in glory. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior. Sing praise song. Praise the Lord. Praise God that he rescued us. Could somebody give me an amen? amen? He defeated Satan. You and I are free. How dare we just go, oh yeah, that. we praise the Lord. We praise the Lord. But secondly, bear in mind that we're called then to live out our mission to be with Jesus. If he set you free, it wasn't so like a cat you could come out of your cage and go, get my tuna, right? It was so you could be like a little puppy going, what can I do, master? What can I do to please you, right? Now, I know your cat's different. People are always like, cats are just as good as dogs. 
my cat acts like a dog. And I go, you just hung yourself for that argument. Why would you want your cat to act like a dog unless they're better? But we're not going to talk about that right now. The point is, he freed us to be with him, right? And if you never want to be with him, start by saying, gosh, he freed me. He died for me. The least I can do as a living sacrifice, learn to be with him and try to be like him. Third, Jesus didn't just call those 12 to go and preach. Too many Christians say, oh, I don't have that gift. Don't worry about the gift. There are people that you know that are in your sphere that God wants you to talk to them about Christ. You don't have to preach to them. You pray for opportunities and ask God to help you to share and say, hey, would you like to come to a Bible study? You want to come to church? Hey, could I take a Bible sometime and talk to you? Well, what if they laugh at me? Well, get in line. And then, are you taking spiritual warfare seriously as we resist the devil and work with Jesus to tear down strongholds and see others freed? Make that a part of your prayer life. If you don't mention this in your prayers regularly, you need to recalculate your prayers. This is how Jesus taught us to pray. Father, let me not wander into temptation. Deliver me from the evil one. And then I pray, Lord, keep my children, keep my grandchildren. Help them to persevere. Protect them. Be a wall of fire around them, Lord. Be a hedge of thorns like, like, like you were around Job. We pray for the Lord Jesus. And every time we, we can convince somebody to turn from sin to Jesus, we didn't do it. The weapons of our warfare were mighty through God to accomplish great things. And many of you get this. You're in the thick of it. You got somebody you love who's being held captive. And some of you are being held captive because you're yielding to your sin instead of surrendering to Christ. And then lastly, Jesus at the end of this chapter, and we'll see it next week, he said, everyone who does God's will, these are my brothers and sisters. Hey, folks, if these are your brothers and sisters, we can't just see one another on Sunday. Hey, how you doing? You don't talk to your brothers and sisters. Some of you go, I haven't talked to my brother in years, right? And that's a good thing. Well, it's not a good thing for Christians. We're in community with one another. So let's close in prayer, and let's just thank the Lord that the great Avenger Jesus, I know some of you want to go home and get your Avenger costume on. Stop it, right? Let's think about this great Avenger, Jesus, who bound the strong man, and now he's coming again, and he's going to put him in hell. But in between that time, we've been forgiven. We got work to do. Father, thank you for Jesus. We give him all the glory, and we freely confess that we didn't seek him. He called us to himself. Oh, Lord, thank you that our chains fell off. Our heart was free, and we rose, went forth, and followed thee. And it is a struggle, Lord. And we all stumble in many ways, and we need one another. And there are times that we are so dumb and careless. Please forgive me, Lord. Help all of us to watch and pray. May this passage excite us to join with Jesus in prayer and expecting great things from God that he will bring many people to salvation through this church, through our witness, through our testimony. Thank you that the gospel is going all over the world. And Father, today I pray that we might just be reminded and even want to spend time with our great Savior, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for rescuing us from Satan. And all God's people said, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.